Good morning. <laughs> First, uh, I'd like to thank Colleen for putting up the book table out there. And uh, let me sort of uh, give some recommendation as regard to the book. There are three books here. All are uh, testimonies. Testimonies. Uh, one person actually was almost living in the time when Jesus was just past, he was born, I think, in 37 AD. Jehoisiphus. Now, this is probably a bit heavy reading, but when I'm doing my studies, this name keeps coming up because he's a historian. And uh, he captures a lot on how the early community lived, the Jewish community, as well as he also mentioned about Jesus. Let me tell you what, how he mentioned. It's not known whether he is actually a Christian. I, 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 we doubt he is, but he is a fair historian. He's a, let me tell you what he says about Jesus. He just goes on to actually un, underpin the historicity of, the historicity of uh, our Christian faith. Okay? Now, this is what Josephus says about Jesus. Now, there was about this time Jesus a wise man, if it be lawful to call him a man. For he is a doer of wonderful work, a teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure. He drew over to him both many Jews and many others. So, we do have a historical account of the Christian faith and the early church. So, I haven't read this book probably... You know, I should make time to actually read this book because it was quoted so many times in my study. You know, Josephus says this about early church. Josephus says that. So I probably uh, uh, will have to put my time to maybe pick up this book. There's two other testimony, and of uh, coming from a few different, uh, two different direction. This, perhaps you've probably heard of him, the heavenly man. It's a testimony of. Brother Yun, who actually came to know the Lord in Communist China, and how he suffered, and how he saw many miracles which brought him through his journey of knowing the Lord more and more. And it's a, a book which I've read. This, this book I've read, okay? This book I've read. So I can recommend you that this book is... I, I was a bit put off with the the title, The Heavenly Man, you know? And I thought, wow, you know, who, who somebody would call himself the Heavenly Man. But it was not about him. It was about Jesus. It's about Jesus. So, uh, a wonderful testimony about how God actually performed miracles and, and, and it gives you a picture of the suffering Chinese church. Um, it always challenged me about how they actually memorize the Bible because at that time, the, the scripture is also a, a scare commodity, uh, a commodity. So, they will, when you pass a, a portion of scripture, you are supposed to memorize it so that you can pass it to the next person because you don't have it anymore. So, imagine every, every time you have a, the, the book of Roman and you actually memorize the whole book of Roman. And, and then they come, okay, now your turn to memorize the book of Isaiah. <laughs> but if you, you get so much, uh, you know, into the word of God that way, 
I mean how you strengthen your faith. Strengthen your faith. And the other book which uh, I think I recommend, I haven't read it, but I know so much about this because I hear so much of his, his, uh, his testimony about how he became a Christian from a Muslim background. Very credible, and he actually thinks through the Muslim faith as a person who is the devout one who actually studied the, the Quran, and later actually he found that the scripture overpower what he actually understands. And Jesus also is the person he had to meet it. This, he had passed away, so his life was actually a, a blessing. He had passed away not too long ago. Nebel Koresh, and Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. So I also recommend this book. It'll be on the table there. So thanks, Colin. I think these are really good books and a lot of other books there which I find amazing. Amazing. All right. Now, uh, to get into the groove of what we've been doing this morning of people sharing about the uh, book Isaiah, allow me just to take a bit of your time uh, to, tell, to, 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 to share around the book of Isaiah. In particular, how Isaiah, the book, could help you in evangelism, in the defense of the scripture, in the defense of scripture. When you share the gospel, probably two questions come up very, very regularly. And the question is that since we actually uh, say the basis of our Christian faith is from the scripture, Two questions may arise. And the first question is, how do you know that this book we have have the integrity of being what the original writer wrote? How do you know that this is actually like what it was written by the author through the transmission over more than 2,000 years and a translation, there's always a suggestion that there's corruption of the word. And what we have now is not the same as what the original writer wrote. So this is the first one question which probably come up. The second question probably come up is, why do you say this is the word of God? On what basis? Is it just a, a, a matter of faith? Faith statement uh, is just, this is the word of God. You spiritualize it. Do we have evidence that this book is more than just human inspiration? A good writing from great people, inspiring, a good analysis of the situation of that time, or how bad they are and give suggestions of how they should be. Is that all that it is? How do you know that this is the word of God? And Isaiah could be an example for you to answer this question. Isaiah, the book of Isaiah. To the first question, in 1947, around that time, a shepherd boy, a shepherd boy, while he was looking for his lost goat, saw a cave and thought that his goat probably climb up the hill to the cave, quite high up. I saw that cave because I will have an opportunity to actually visit uh, Israel. The cave is up in a hill. But you know, goat can actually climb up hill very well, more than man. Yeah. 
So he said it could be there. So he took some stone and threw to flush out the goat. And he heard some cracking sound of breaking of pottery. He was a bit not wanting to go, but he went back home. And the next day, gathered enough courage, he went to that cave and he found, he was hoping to find pots of gold perhaps. <laughs> but he found actually, to me, to the world now, things were more precious than gold. Writings in scroll, writings in scrolls kept in many, many pottery. And you know the story on the Dead Sea Scroll. The Dead Sea Scroll was found. 2,000 over years of literature was kept, preserved in pottery. Tremendous find. Now among the writings is the book of Isaiah. It's the book of Isaiah. So we now have sort of an, an Isaiah which is 2,000 over years old and our present Isaiah. And then we have the opportunity to compare the two. To compare the two. And they found that the integrity of what we have here actually matches with what they found in the book of Isaiah in the port 2,000 years ago. Now this does not go all the way to, to say the rest of the Bible actually is there, have that integrity. But we must follow up with this explanation. Now, this shows us that within the Judeo-Christian community, there is an obsession and there is a preoccupation to copy the text from generation to generation in such meticulous way. So we can actually project it to the rest of the scripture because this is the obsession of sex to, to, uh, of, of the Christian, Judeo-Christian culture to make sure through debate and through critique, every time a translation or a, a, a copy is made, there is a lot of eyes looking at it and make sure that there is that integrity that it is actually copied as soundly, as, as, as very much capturing the scripture from the last generation. So this is our culture. And even to now, as you have various translations of the Bible, we still have that culture within the Christian community. Now that's only one scripture. And if you think that we also have in the New Testament world, the Codex, the Codex Vaticanus, the Codex Sinaiticus, and all that, which are about the 11th century scripture of the Christian world. Now, Peter will probably understand it because these are historical things. We have that even now. And we found, we can see that this is actually, again, that kind of culture we are trying always to capture the original text. Original text. Now, I think this is a better way to assure that the text have integrity rather than to say that, you know, we have that, uh, the, the, the scripture which is uh, uh, somehow written in gold and it does not decay and then you actually follow it. No, because we have always that kind of correction and have the culture to make sure 
You know, if I ask you to, 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 to say, point to a direction and say, that's the house, you point it, and you find that you probably veered a little bit out than that house. But if you can correct your way every time, you probably are more accurate than just pointing at that place. Okay, so I am confident that this is a fairly good way for people who are earnest and people who are honest to look at the evidence. So Isaiah can give you, the book of Isaiah can give you that explanation to your evangelism. That's the first one. Now the second one is about why we say this is the word of God. On what basis do we say this is the word of God? As you know, we say Isaiah is a prophet. And within the book of Isaiah, as we have studied through the year, there are prophecies. That means Isaiah is foretelling in his writing things which are going to happen in the near future, in the a bit further future, and before, I mean, much later. So there are staggered prophecies. And the test of prophecy that it be it became true. He even mentioned the, the, uh, the king who is going to take, to allow the Jewish people to actually migrate back from Ezra. He named him King Cyrus. Even King Cyrus was born. But more than that, he mentioned this even before the exile actually happened. And so you see here that it cannot be of human work. There must be a supernatural intervention. There must be a supernatural intervention. It's not a projection. It is detailed prophecy. So Isaiah, the book, gives us that. Prophecy. And more than that, the prophecy of Jesus Christ the Christmas story, the detail of it. Now you have to explain to me how can it be if it's just human work. Names are given. How can it be? It can only be the Word of God. And the Bible does not only consist of one book of prophecies. You have Ezekiel, you have Jeremiah, you have Amos, you have lots of prophets in the Bible prophesizing. So the Bible as a book is taking great risk to put this prophecy in and say, test us, test the Bible that this is the word of God, but the prophecy is in there. So to me, if I'm a serious seeker, it should struck me and say, you know, okay, that's enough evidence that I must consider this word of God. I must consider this word of God. It's not just a statement of faith. You can take it, it is actually quite scientific. Quite scientific. As the things which science is asked to prove, that's the way we do it. That's the way we do it. The evidence are there. The evidence are there. So, we come to the last chapter of Isaiah 66. Uh, the last chapter, Isaiah 66. The whole book of Isaiah. Now, if Isaiah, the book of Isaiah is like a, 
uh, Sam says, a lot of instruction to help us in our walk in the Lord, in growing the Lord, a lot of instruction. I would expect the last chapter to have the most important instruction. Instruction which gives the overview or more the critical importance. I remember going to take a course in open water diving. It's called open water uh, because you go to the sea, it's open water. And after certification, you actually, I'm allowed to actually take with my tank, go down a 10-story high depth. It's pretty deep. Every time I do a 10-story, I was down there and the, 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 the boat's up there. Now, it's a dangerous thing too. We have to go to five days of a lot of classroom telling a lot of things about diving. But in the last moment, when we're on the boat, just before we actually jump into the water, the instructions tell you, I'm going to tell you just three important things. Just three important things. The first thing is don't hold your breath. When you breathe in, don't hold because you are bre- I'm breathing air which is 150 bar. Which is, you know, air which is compressed 150 times. So what I'm taking in, if I just hold my breath, and I come up, my lung will expand 150 times. I think that would not be good. You kill me. I will burst like a balloon. The second thing he said is that don't panic. <laughs> yeah, you must do, do everything slowly and don't try to come up fast. Because you, if you see a panic and you come up fast, the nitrogen in your blood will bubble. And you end up, you'll be killed too if you don't end up very, very sick. So the last moment he gave us the most important thing, things which probably can kill us if we don't obey. So Isaiah, as instruction, we would expect that to see that kind of thing in the last chapter. In the last chapter. Now Isaiah is also a book telling a story. The saga of God and man, in particular, the Jewish nation at that time. It's a story. So in the last chapter, I will need to find that it's a resolution to the story. A closing. The, the, like we have, and they marry and they give happy ever after. That kind of closing. Maybe not to the whole story, but a sequel. We allow the next sequel to take out. A closure, a resolution. So you'll find that in the book of Isaiah, the last, last chapter of Isaiah. And finally, Isaiah is, to me, is also like a letter. The last, Isaiah chapter 66, is the last paragraph of a letter which a parent writes to the child in transition time. Maybe the child is going to the new job. Maybe the child is leaving home. Maybe the child is getting married a transition state. And then in the last paragraph, there'll be some assurances, some encouragement, and maybe some warning. So I find Isaiah chapter 66 bring <coughs> all this thing in. Okay, let's look at the book of Isaiah chapter 66. In the first few words, he say, Here, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you built for me and where is the place for my rest? All these things, 
my hands have made. And so, all these things came to be. Very important for us is to capture this anchor. Now, please remember that God is complete. He did not need to save us to make Him happier or more fulfilled. He did not need anything we can give to Him. He is complete. He is full. There is no agenda, selfish agenda for Him to plan out salvation. Nothing. Please, let's get this straight. Because sometimes I think we sing like, I don't like the song. Think like, He's lonely, and because He's lonely up there, uh, you don't want heaven without us, and therefore you send Jesus Christ. To me, I think that actually put down that God has a, a need. In His triune fellowship, the God, the Father, God, the Son, and God, the Holy, they have beautiful fellowship. They did not need any company at all. But He do it because He chose to do it. He chose to do it. Not that He has a need for it. So he says very clearly. So we have to get that straight so we do not feel, uh, 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 what do you call, oh, I'm doing something great by the Lord by sharing the gospel. I'm doing great sort of the Lord because I believe or I do something. We should actually empty ourselves from that thought. God is complete. Now, we know that the word grace, which is very used in the New Testament, grace is about undeserved favor. God gave us the undeserved faith. He gave goodness to us. He gave goodness that even because we don't deserve it, He gave it to us. Undeserved favor. That means we don't deserve every good thing which God gives, we don't deserve. In particular, salvation. We actually do not deserve salvation. We don't deserve it. And this is one side of the coin. The other side of the coin is God did not need to do it. God do not need to do to give us salvation. He's complete by himself. So it is two sides of the coin which we have to appreciate. We don't deserve it and God do not need to do it. And that makes it a whole picture. And we should worship God because he chose to do it. He chose to give us. He chose to give. So, that's why he says, Heaven is my throne. The earth is my food. So, what can you give to me? So, this is the first thought. And therefore, it leads us to when we become, we, we want to, so, accept the grace of salvation. He says here, but this in verse uh, same part of verse 2, but this is one to whom I look, he who humble himself and contrite in spirit and tremble at my word. And therefore, the right posture of coming to the cross is that we humble ourselves. Because we are utter bankrupt and God doesn't need us. We don't have anything to, be, to, to actually bring it up. As, uh, uh, God, because you need me, okay, I come to you. But I have a bargaining, I have, I have a worth, I have a value. Nothing. We come to God posturing our needs bent. 
And that is probably the most difficult part of evangelism. It's not that a person cannot reason that there's a God, reason that he is actually sinful. But the most difficult part is the bending of the knees and say, God, I humble myself. I, I need you. So that's what, when you do, God says, in a promise, but this is the one to whom I look. God look on in favor. He who humbles himself and in contrite spirit and tremble at my words. And tremble at my words. The next thing we go is from verse 3 to verse 4. And we will actually find a lot of things we are not familiar with. You know, the breaking of the dog's necks, the offering of pig's blood and all that kind of thing. Now, in this, you got two lists. On one list is the thing which actually apply to worship, temple worship. You know, bringing a sacrifice of lamb, great offering, making memorial offering, and the Lord. So you have that, the worship, the Old Testament worship. And on the other side is the taboo, what they're not supposed to do. You know, kill a man, you know. Uh, what do you call Break a dog's neck. Uh, offer pig's blood and the Lord. These two should not come together, but Isaiah put this thing together. It's the same. Whatever you do this, God says, I treat it as a taboo. It is such an insult. Such an insult. You may think that these people come to the, 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 the temple with all this paraphernalia and the, the things they do. You say, oh, I'm glad he come to church that day. I'm glad he actually put the offering. I'm glad they... Man, but God said, I'm not glad. You might as well not come. You might as well go and worship the idol. And what is the reason behind it? Is God being so such a hard taskmaster? But it just say one thing to me. God sees the heart. God sees the heart. Away from the paraphernalia of worship, the what you do, what I do, speaking even here, away from all this, what is in my heart? What is in my heart? If we understand God, here Isaiah is asking, if you actually believe that God is God, that he knows everything, what is in our heart matters. What is in our heart matters. And that is the heart of things. That, if that's the last word, with Isaiah, these are the last words he has said. When I instruct you all other things and all that kind of thing, and you can actually do it physically and show that, yes, I'm, I, I'm following the rules. That's not it. The question is, what is in our heart? What is in our heart? What is in my heart? What is in my heart? Let's always examine ourselves. What is in my, our heart? And in from verse 5 on, let, 
Isaiah is also encouraging the people and say, look here, you will be probably discouraged as my people, those who say, those who call themselves my people. Even your brothers will actually, what do you call, insult you. You say, ah, okay, let's say you have the joy of the Lord. In a very cynical way, there will be persecution. There will be persecution. And, and, and Isaiah said, briefly say, you know, don't worry. Don't worry. The Lord knows. The Lord knows. Now some of the last words will be also this. He says about from verse 7, again, uh, verse 7 to verse, uh, verse 9. Isaiah brings a metaphor a very natural metaphor of giving birth and being born and all that. Uh, A very common thing. But underlying that is that, you know, you're talking of a woman who actually gave birth without labor. Who has such a thing? Who has heard such thing? What is just bringing through the metaphor is when God actually going to finally execute His plan, you will have no doubt that is not human execution. He will do it because he is going to do it and he does it. It's all about God executing his plan. His plan. So I personally will bring all this out. It's not by that, 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 that through the, uh, the gospel uh, of uh, we preach and all that, community will change and community will evolve to a utopian stage whereby we actually have the kingdom of God on earth. No. The, the, the things which the prophetic uh, word of God is that we will pray for peace, but let me assure you from what, I mean, okay, I, how, this is how I understanding, uh, how I understand the future is going to be. It's going to get worse. It is going to get worse. Evil will reign more and more, it's going to get worse. Feel sad. Feel disappointed. Feel a longing that our grandchildren and our children's children will actually face more challenges. But this is going to happen. This is going to happen. But we have a gospel, alright? It will only get worse to the point where God come in and intervene. And that's the only solution. That's the only solution where the final kingdom of God comes. That's what he said here. You know, if we not be civilization will actually evolve to be better and better to the degree that we don't need gods to come in and intervene. No. It'll get worse. It'll get worse. From verse 10, rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad over her, all you who love her. Rejoice with her in joy, all you who mourn over her. In the book of Isaiah, there is always the thought of the Jerusalem. The Jerusalem. Now, in the Christian, uh, among the scholars, there's some debate of whether do we actually mean the geographical position, the, the, the place Jerusalem, or do we need, mean a spiritual Jerusalem? I, I'm, I'm, I'm not really into one or the other without sufficient studies into it. But let me tell you an experience. 
from where Kumran is, the Dead Sea Scroll, Chin and myself, we are on a bus uh, with a group of Christians, and we were going. From the Kumran cave to Jerusalem is, I think, the most 20 kilometers away. Now, you don't see, like, you, you, you travel to Melbourne, you can see the city and all that kind of thing. You don't see it that way. You actually, I was surprised, we went through a, a tunnel, and suddenly coming out of the tunnel, bang, I saw Jerusalem. You know, it's like, you know, I, 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 wouldn't, I wouldn't put myself as an emotional person. I can be a bit passionate, but I wouldn't put myself as an emotional person. But I cried. The first time I see Jerusalem, it may be a shock to me, just come and see Jerusalem, you know, the, the walls and all that. I, I cried. I cried. It may be because my Lord walked that path. What I see, my Lord actually experienced. It may be have that kind of connection which we have, that longing. But I cried. But I believe that what, I mean, Jerusalem is a place where there's so much of spiritual history being forged in. The very stone there. I'm preserved, I think that it must have a place. I believe that it must have a place in the new heaven and the earth. It must be a place where God, I mean, hero it or make some uh, rejoicing over it. There's so much happened in Jerusalem. And isn't this the place where Jesus actually went up to Gethsemane, went up to Gethsemane. And Jerusalem will be the focus. To me, I mean, when the new heaven and new earth. Rejoice with Jerusalem. Rejoice with Jerusalem. And then come, from verse 15 onward, 15 onward. There is a warning, a very serious warning to all who hears. And if you do not hear this warning, you take your future in your hand at your own risk. And the warning is this. There will be judgment there will be eternal judgment. God will judge evil. God will judge. And this is a very serious one. He will come. And it's not your consequences of your sin that you fall into misfortune. It is the personalized God say, I will judge. Now, Sometimes we can be a bit careless to just say there will, there will be judgment. But I remember the story of one of the revivalists, either he is actually Wesley or one of those rich English revivalists. They went to town to town on horseback and then they start preaching to everybody in, a, in the marketplace. Could be, could be Charles Wesley. And he was said, he start, they always start to preach about the judgment of God, the depravity of sin. They start preaching it on and on. 
Till they see that tears start to fall like river. It is over the, 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 the darkened face of the stood cover face of those miners. Like rivers or stream of tears start falling. When they see that tears, then, then they speak and they preach of the mercies of God. Of the mercies of God. No wonder the revival they actually brought up still have effect on us today. The Western Christianized community, I think we actually owe, ourselves, owe a big debt to these revivalists who preach the gospel according to the, the, the weight of the gospel. You must preach judgment. We must be faithful to preach judgment on sin. We must name and call out sin as sin and not the culture to depict what we say is right or tolerable. We must name the sin out and we must be brave to it even though as a testimony of it, it will mean that we may have to suffer for it. Unless sin is called out sin, the cross will be emptied of its real power. Real power. Now, I love from verse 18 forward. Verse 18 speaks of this. You know, as I travel and I, I, I visited churches, and I, one of the best things in travel is actually not just to see the... the, the the, the his, what do you call the God's creation or civilization building, nice building. It's nice, it's nice. But one of the most richest experience I have in my travel is when I come across and I have fellowship with Christians from all different backgrounds. And now it may be the, the, the decadence of when we are in a cruise ship for quite a few times. We actually, you know, somebody will put a poster up in a cruise ship there and say, uh, a small poster, uh, we're going to meet for worship at such and such a time. And then when we gather together, we can see, uh, you know, uh, Christians who are enjoying the good part of life and we enjoy the fellowship. And on one occasion, we were actually having opportunity to actually uh, fellowship the people who just came back from Haiti who were doing work in Haiti and who was contributing to when Haiti was in trouble with, I think, earthquake or flood or something like that, and they came up with story of how God actually intervened in their work. And that was wonderful. And they, they enjoyed that from different nationalities. On one occasion, we have the privilege, one professor was <coughs> in the boat, and he was from Moody Bible College, and he gave an exposition of the book of John. And we were just drinking it. And, oh, that was so good. That was so good. That was, but I also have opportunity to visit China, the, the Christian there, in the midst of all that transition from communist world to a Christian world, the suffering they have, and the joy they have. I really enjoyed that, that fellowship with them. Cambodia, Chin and myself, I remember the time where 
I visited my son. My son went for about two months stint in Cambodia to help the church there. When he finished his year 12, he decided to go to Cambodia and, and do a stint there you know, to, to just experience some mission work. Not too much. But when I went there, I, I saw him coming back. I was early. He was coming back. And what happened is that this, this group of Christian youth, they they have a motorbike and they actually pull a trailer behind their motorbike and you have 10 people sitting on the trailer there and they were going in with their, not only people, they have the pot and pan and they have their bedding and all that and they put behind the trailer and they go in, my son was with them, to villages right in the jungle to conduct Sunday school and to preach God's word. You, you, they're doing that, loving the Lord. And they come back here all dusty in face and all that, and they're just sharing of the joy they have. Such privilege which I have. And in the Philippines, I, I, we went, I, I went with Pastor Clive and all that kind of, and they were telling, you know, every single summer for them, the group of the Bible students will also do the same. They will actually take a bag and all that and enough food for them to sustain for, for three or four weeks and they'll go and they'll call up a, a, a school and say, can we stay in your school just to stay? And when they're in the school, they go up trekking and they go up after that trekking with a program to have an evangelistic meeting and after that, they'll set a church up and one of them will stay back to minister the church. They actually carry their own food. No, all that's I tell you, when I go to this thing, it's me. I'm blessed. They always ask me to do a bit of Bible study, but that is the But I'm blessed. I can see a lot of these people way in front of me when God called up and said, you know, well done, good and faithful servant. Good and faithful servant. Many times I see the authenticity of this faith when if there is this, this Christian, we think that we bring uh, goodies of food or the United Nations bring goodies and food and all that kind of thing to help the poor in that area. The Christian will be the last in the line in this kind of thing. Not only that, many times when we bring things to offer to the community, the Christian who are poor, they will chip in. They are really poor, okay? They will chip in to include, to, to let us include their offering into the, what we can offer. The authenticity, authenticity of their faith and their love. Man, I enjoyed uh, for just one short session when we had the Belgrave uh, uh, camp the other day and all the Christians gathered together. We're going to have this. We're going to have this when Christ comes. This is going to be the super camp. Super camp, man. I can't think of a joy which I look forward to and uh, they say, go to heaven. I say, one of these is, is this, to see. And not only for this time, for the ages. You meet with Moses. You meet with a lot of things. Probably, you know, you, 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 you meet with a great guy. And we're going to have great joy 